about prayer before we begin. Please pay attention to the worship column in the bulletin uh, this week where there's a very helpful article on Tim Keller's, from Tim Keller on the use of collects. We pray collects at the end of our intercessions every Sunday and uh, collects are things we can use in our own prayer time. So I do commend the worship column to you this week. Then secondly, this week we were also thinking about praying the promises of God and I promised to make available some of the uh, promises uh, in the Bible so that you can use them in your own devotional life. I put uh, some photocopies by Alistair. Would you just wave a copy so people know where they are? Thank you, Alistair. You can pick one up if you haven't got one already uh, after the service. <coughs> let's, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is indeed our joy to worship you together and bring you the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. We thank you that you are our Father, that you know us through and through, and that your word is able first to find us, then to speak to us, then to transform us. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, this passage will come alive to our hearts and minds this morning. Speak, Lord, for your children are listening. Amen. Well, we're on page 256 of the Church Bible, 1 Kings 19, verse 1 and following, the prayer of a broken servant. Now, in our series, self-evidently, we're exploring the theme of prayer, and so far, one of the great discoveries we've made is that what makes the God of the Bible different from the gods of human imagination is that he answers the prayers of his people. And we've seen some very dramatic examples of that from the life of Elijah. But this morning we're looking at a completely new aspect of prayer, uh, which I've called the prayer of broken-hearted honesty. Uh, you'll find it there in verse 4. Have a look at verse 4. Where Elijah says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. Now I think immediately many of us feel that that connects with our own experience. Um, can any of us honestly say that we've never felt like that at some point or other? I think most of us can think of times when we uh, believe we've been pressing on sincerely in the Christian life, but in spite of our very best efforts to serve the Lord faithfully, just about everything seems to be falling around our ears. Is that familiar? Well, of course it is. So the way that uh, the Lord cares for Elijah in his hour of darkness is a very real word of encouragement for you and me uh, in those times when we feel that we haven't really got the strength to go on. And it helps us to pray more effectively. But in order to hear what God is saying to us this morning, we mustn't be too hasty to put ourselves in Elijah's shoes. Instead, what we need to do is to begin by asking, what was the crisis that Elijah was facing? Why this terribly dramatic change in God's servant? <coughs> Last week uh, in chapter 18, you remember, 
we saw Elijah, the great man of prayer, uh, standing alone against 450 pagan fundamentalists and coming out on top. This week, he's on the floor, he's out for the count. What on earth has gone wrong? Some people have tried to suggest that um, perhaps Elijah's having some kind of nervous breakdown. And so one writer, who really ought to know better, puts it like this. He says, Elijah cracked up. And uh, as we read on, he says, we see the man at whose courage Israel had marvelled fleeing before the threat of a mere woman. Well, there's a great deal wrong with that statement. Uh, Not least the description of Jezebel as a mere woman. She was far more than that. But the worst thing is that it completely misses the truth that God has got for you and me in this text. Because if we read the text carefully, I think we can pick up three factors that explain the dramatic change in Elijah and help us to see why he prayed as he did. So first we're going to notice his despair over persistent unbelief in Israel. Second, we're going to see him in anguish for God's church. And then thirdly, we're going to discover that he was blind to God's victory and there's something for us in each of these headings. So firstly then, his despair at persistent unbelief. Now last week we saw um, Elijah praying that God would give the people an unmistakable sign of his existence. And on that occasion, uh, it pleased God to give an immediate answer. God sent fire from heaven and straight away all Israel responded with one voice, the Lord, he is God. So there was what today we would describe as a revival. There was a sudden awareness of the reality of God and the need to put away their idol worship. But of course, as with all revivals, the great question on Mount Carmel was this. Is their repentance genuine? Is this a real spiritual awakening? Will it last? A few weeks ago, um, Gillian and I were fortunate enough to attend a ministry conference in London and uh, the place was packed with hundreds of pastors and the talks at the conference were excellent. But you see, it is one thing, isn't it, for me to claim that I'm living for God after an absolutely brilliant gospel talk when I'm surrounded by hundreds of people who are all saying the same thing. But the only way you can actually tell whether there's any substance to my claim or not is by watching how I behave when I have to suffer for it. This week I was reminded about a a Jewish man who uh, became a Christian. Interestingly, he wasn't actually converted at an evangelistic outreach, um, but rather by attending lunchtime meetings for businessmen where there was a short talk and the opportunity to ask questions afterwards. And this man did that for several months. He asked all the tough questions 
Uh, It seems that in the process he made really rather a nuisance of himself uh, to the point that uh, when he finally announced he'd become a Christian, nobody was really quite sure whether his faith was genuine or not. But immediately the pressure was on in this man's life because in the space of just a few weeks his family rejected him, uh, he lost his job, his wife left him. In spite of that, he stood firm in his faith. Now that was a particularly severe test and it is my prayer that nothing quite as dramatic as that ever happens to you. But you see the point, don't you? The suffering proved that his faith was real. Now in our passage this morning, the pressure was on Israel straight away because in verse 1... Ahab returns from Mount Carmel and tells Jezebel what's happened and how Elijah killed all the prophets. Now at this point in the story, we're not actually told which way Ahab, as the leader of the nation, which way he was leaning. Uh, He may may well have been secretly impressed by everything that he'd witnessed on the mountain. He might have been thinking of signing up for um, Christianity Explored or getting some serious one-to-one discipleship from Elijah. We don't know. Text doesn't say. But Jezebel's message for Elijah leaves us in no doubt about who was really wearing the trousers in the palace. Verse 2. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of the prophets. So if Elijah thinks there's going to be any serious change in Israel's religion, he can forget it. Jezebel's got other plans. Now what was Elijah's reaction to that? Now, to get a proper handle on this, we need to look very carefully at verse 3 together. Verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid. But you'll notice, I hope, that there's a footnote against the word afraid. And uh, at the bottom of the page, it gives the alternative translation, Elijah saw. And uh, wiser heads than mine think that that is the correct reading. And of course the context proves that, doesn't it? I mean, if you're the kind of man who can stand up to 450 senior clergy and win the day, you're not easily afraid, are you? So verse 3 ought to read, Elijah saw and ran for his life. So the great question is, what on earth did he see? Well, he saw that in spite of the victory on Mount Carmel, nothing had really changed in Israel. If the people were ever going to be persuaded by evidence alone, the fire from heaven would surely have done the trick. They would have been determined to stand firm against Jezebel. But of course they didn't. So as far as Elijah is concerned... His mission has been a failure, and that's why he's so depressed. Now, friends, can I say that that is a great reminder 
that whilst evidence is important, evidence alone is never enough. I think so often we think that um, if we inform people with the evidence that they will change. But I'm sure you know that in your ordinary everyday experience that um, more often than not they don't. I mean, if you're a parent, you know perfectly well you can inform your children about the health benefits of a balanced diet. But the information alone is never enough to make them change their eating habits. You know also that the government can spend millions informing smokers that cigarettes cause cancer. But again, the information alone is very unlikely to make them give up. Now the same principle applies when it comes to God. Even the most educated, um, intelligent people can be fully informed with all the evidence for the existence of God and yet still refuse to believe in him. Uh, Last week I gave you uh, an example from a book by John Blanchard. I've got another one for you this morning. Because in one of his books he tells of the extraordinary blindness of a very eminent scientist by the name of George Walt. Uh, This man won the Nobel Prize for Physiology. So he's a highly intelligent man and he spends his entire life carefully weighing up scientific evidence. Now listen to what he says when he weighed up the evidence for the origin of life. He said this, When it comes to the origin of life on this earth, there are only two possibilities creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way, says a scientist. Spontaneous generation was disproved a hundred years ago, but that leads to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that, he says, on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible that life arose spontaneously by chance. Now that is an astonishing statement, isn't it? This brilliant man refuses to accept the evidence and instead he chooses to believe the impossible. Now why is that? How are we to understand it when men and women carry on in willful unbelief in denial of all the evidence? Well, the New Testament provides the answer to that question, and can I tell you, it's not what most people think. Keep a finger in 1 Kings, and turn with me, please, to John 3, on page 750. John's Gospel, chapter 3, page 750, right-hand column, verse 19. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now think about that. 
John tells us there something that no professing atheist will ever admit. He says that people persist in unbelief not because they've carefully considered all the evidence and in good conscience find it unconvincing. Not that. No, they persist in unbelief because they are living an evil life and they don't want anybody to find out about it. You see, they they would rather continue to live a lifestyle that they know to be wrong, even if it means turning their back on all the evidence. Now friends, you see, it was that stubborn unbelief in Israel that was the first cause of Elijah's despair. So come back with me now to 1 Kings. And notice the second cause of Elijah's despair, which I've called anguish for God's church. Now in verse 8 of 1 Kings 19, uh, we're told that Elijah travels for 40 days and 40 nights until he gets to Mount Horeb. Now it's important to know that that wasn't a random destination. Uh, The destination is highly significant because Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai where God had made his covenant with Israel through Moses. And if we're going to understand Elijah's anguish, we need to remind ourselves of why God made a covenant with Israel in the first place. Well, in the book of Exodus, we're told that the purpose of that covenant was that Israel should become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, they were meant to be the channel for God's blessing to the whole world. Now that, you see, is why in the New Testament, you don't need to look it up, but in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes a letter to the worldwide church and he addresses them like this. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So you see, friends, if you and I were to ask the Apostle Peter this morning, What is the purpose of the church on earth? The Apostle Peter would say, your purpose is to tell the world what God has done for you. Now that's what God expects Christians to be doing today, and that's what Israel was supposed to be doing in 1 Kings 19. Now how are they getting on with that responsibility? Look carefully with me, please, at 1 Kings 19, verse 10, page 256, right-hand column. Verse 10, can we all see it? Midway through the verse, The Israelites, says Elijah, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. In other words, they've completely rejected their relationship with God 
and they're doing their level best to eliminate any remaining witness to God's love and mercy. Think about it. Broken down altars means there was no worship. No prophets means there was no instruction in the word, no sermons. So there was no Bible teaching. And Elijah is deeply upset about it. And friends, I think if if Elijah were here with us this morning, I think he might say, do you get upset about these things? Are you bothered by casual, meaningless worship when you find it? Do you notice when entire sections of the church show complete indifference to issues of truth and pay virtually no attention to the word of God? Does that bother you? He would say. A few years ago, the Lausanne Congress um, met in Cape Town. I'm sure some of you know the Lausanne Congress was founded by John Stott and Billy Graham back in 1974. And the purpose of it was to promote world evangelisation. During the meeting here in Cape Town, I had the opportunity to chat to one of the delegates. And he told me that in a daily programme that lasted for up to 12 hours, the time allocated to Bible exposition was 20 minutes. Now friends, if your goal is to get people motivated to share the gospel, can I suggest that 20 minutes out of 12 hours is not going to get the job done? I mean, that's hopeless, isn't it? What would God say? Well, God's answer to Elijah is fascinating. See, I think that many people would be hoping that uh, God's answer would be more signs than wonders. You know, they would say, wouldn't they, just keep giving the people more fire from heaven and eventually they'll get the message. What does God say? Verse 11. The Lord said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? See, men may say that they can only believe if God goes on doing signs and wonders. But God says, if you want to find me, you've got to listen to my gentle voice. Now, I think that is the plain meaning of the text. And on the reverse of the blue question sheet, I've given you a quotation from what I think is quite the best commentary on 1 Kings by Dr. Ralph Davis. He says this. He says, I find it difficult to let go of the tantalising contrast between the Lord's not being in the wind, earthquake and fire and his apparent presence in the quiet voice. 
Might this suggest that the Lord will not be giving many dramatic overt proofs of his reality as at Carmel, now that such revelation has been officially rejected? Instead, his presence and reality will primarily be seen in his ongoing work of judgment and grace, which, through his voice and his word, he has disclosed to his prophet. The quietness of the Lord's work does not mean that he's not at work, but rather that the kingdom of God has gone into its mustard seed mode. There is a spillover from the text to our own day. Christians may crave signs, but will seldom find Christ in the wind, earthquake and fire. Biblical faith is content with the word. So Elijah was in despair over persistent unbelief. He was in anguish over God's church. But there was a third factor behind his brokenness, which I called blindness to God's victory. You see, the third problem facing Elijah was that he couldn't actually see into the future. As far as he knew, all the prophets of the Lord had been killed, he was the only one left, and now they were out to liquidate him as well. And he makes the same point twice. I wonder if you noticed that. He does it once in verse 10, and he says almost the same thing again, doesn't he, in verse 14. It's as if Elijah feels God isn't perhaps up to speed with the situation and needs informing. No, Lord, I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. And if they kill me, you won't have a witness in Israel. I think that's the way he's thinking. And of course that's typical of many Christian groups today, isn't it? Many Christian groups fall into the trap of believing that they're the only ones who've remained faithful to God. But actually, as it turns out, it's not God who needs to be put straight, it's Elijah. Because in verse 18, do look at verse 18, God tells Elijah... I reserve, or perhaps better, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths haven't kissed him. Now, friends, that would have been the most extraordinary surprise for Elijah. You know, we, we can almost hear him say, 7,000, Lord? Are you absolutely sure? I thought I was the only one. And you see, the point is that because Elijah could not see into the future, he was deceived about the present. He was completely thrown off balance by Jezebel's message from the palace. Because as far as he could tell, uh, Jezebel was in control, and God's cause in Israel had been almost wiped out. That was Elijah's reality. But now suppose for a moment that God had given Elijah a DVD of the future. And uh, as he sat there under the broom tree, he could see how all of this story was going to end. 
Suppose Elijah could see the chariots and the horsemen taking him victoriously up to heaven and could hear Elisha saying that, Elijah, you have been Israel's hero, I don't know what we'd have done without you. Don't you think that would have cheered him up? Or suppose he could have seen ahead to the Mount of Transfiguration and watched himself standing with Moses, talking to Jesus about the victory of the cross and the resurrection. Don't you think that would have lifted his spirits? Or looking even further ahead, suppose he could see on that DVD James in his study writing his letter and saying, by the way, if you want to know anything about prayer and the power of prayer, you better read the story of Elijah. Suppose he could have seen ahead to the day when King Jehu stormed into the palace courtyard and two servants threw Jezebel out of the window and as soon as she hit the ground, the horses trampled her to death. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 9. If Elijah could have seen all those things, well, he would have realised, wouldn't he, that in the end, Jezebel's schemes meant absolutely nothing. He would have realised that in the end, the Lord always has the victory. And that's why the Lord says to Elijah, stop worrying. I've reserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bound the knee to Baal. I want you to see how very practical this is for us. Because in every generation, there will be times when Christian people feel that God must have turned his back on the church. Uh, The gospel seems to be making almost no progress at all. But you see, verse 18 is expressing a really important truth that runs all the way through the Bible. However bleak things might appear to be on the surface, God will always preserve a faithful people for himself. So one of the great confessions of the church, the Westminster Confession celebrates that important truth. And in chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession, it says this, there will always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Now that is an enormous comfort, isn't it? It means that we can be absolutely certain that God is always pouring out his grace behind the scenes. So when we bring our unbelieving friends to church, we might think nothing very much is happening. We might get rather depressed about it. But all the time, God is actually at work, behind the scenes, in the hearts of men and women, drawing them to himself. Now the great problem for us is that, of course, we don't know who they are, do we? If we did, we could target them carefully, but God hasn't told us who they are. Instead, he's told us that it pleases him to work through his gentle whisper, to work through his word. And you see, our job, therefore, 
is to make that word known to as many people as possible and trust that as we do that, God will graciously wake some of them up. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for that gentle whisper. We praise you that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we have not trusted your word to do its work and we've turned to other methods. Help us, Lord, to proclaim your word boldly and faithfully knowing that as we do that you will be building your kingdom and that in every generation you will preserve a faithful witness and we ask it in the name of the word made flesh even Jesus Christ our Lord Amen